everybody, what's up and welcome to another edition of Partywood, the show where we talk about movies with the people who make movies, except not this week yet again, uh, which you'll find out about in a bit. Um, I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... I was trying to determine whether that accent was supposed to be Italian. I have no idea. I think it was kind of generic YouTuber. It was... <laughs> it was so... It was it was almost going back to your Wanderer's accent. But, um, <laughs> hey, I'm Andrew Roger Carson. I'm back in the UK and never have I been so freaking miserable <laughs> to match the shitty weather. I've had two weeks of sun and fantastic food, lots of, like, famous people and locations and work and all this stuff, and you just kind of hit... Come back to Manchester, aren't you? Hit this atmosphere. It is horrible. The only way it could be worse is if I'm in Salford. Uh, well, uh, we wouldn't wish that on our most worst enemy. Well, we would, though, because otherwise they wouldn't be our worst enemy. They'd kind of just be our... Uh, we don't get on with them, but I guess they're all right. Yeah. But, like... You know, Chris Rock and Will Smith. And you know what? I'm I'm putting this right out there now. Okay. Yeah, let's I'm touch sick. on it. Everyone else in the universe has touched on it. Let's give it our five cents. Go on. Okay. Here's my five cents. Who gives a shit? Right? <laughs> I'm. Uh, who honestly gives a shit? They don't even give a shit anymore. Right? It's, it's honestly. Do you think all of these people going online and expelling their opinion on it, do you think it means anything? No. It was a stupid reaction to a stupid joke. It wasn't even a good joke. You know, it's not the kind that Ricky Gervais would do. You know full well if Ricky Gervais had been up there and Will Smith had gone up to slap him, Gervais would have slapped him back. It would have been the first full-blown fight at an Oscar ceremony. Yeah. And the worst thing is, it's it's like a series that will never end. No. And should have ended episodes ago. And I've just found out now that he's been banned from the Oscars for 10 years. So that now we're going to hear about that for the next week, where some of the people last week who were saying, oh, it was dangerously out of line, are now going to turn around and say, oh, that's too harsh. And who cares? Who cares? These people don't even have to work ever again. I think Putin probably cares. Oh, well, he's, he's yeah. There, he's there in Moscow going, what, what is this? What is this? Two people in, in America, they have fight, knock me off news headlines. What is this? Yeah, you know. And demand um, more publicity. Yeah, and coronavirus is there saying, now you know how it feels. Yeah. So, but at the end of the day, who cares? Right? Yeah, honestly, it's just, it's useless news. It was a weak-looking slap. Yeah. It, it was. I mean, I was I was there watching it live. I wasn't in the building. I was actually at Bill's house and we were watching it. Hi, Bill. Yeah. Hi, Bill. And yeah, yeah, we'd had a drink or two. But, um, you know, at the time it was like, whoa, wow, that's a moment. And then just the outrage. The worst thing is I can't even remember who won Best Picture now. Coda. Coda. Right, you know what? Ever since Coda won it, I'd forgotten they'd won it because I've had to listen to this shit. Every single day. And it's boring. Stop. Let them deal with it on their own time. I don't care who's lost movie deals and whose ticket sales have increased and all that bollocks. All right? Get over it. Next. 
Right. Well, in that case, uh, should we get on with the show then? There's a show. Yeah, oh, I, think so. I didn't realize we'd started yet. It's, um, taken, it's taken two weeks for us to get there because uh, uh, you've been away. Um, I've had some personal stuff going on. And now we're, we're both back. We're both ready to get in and rearing. Uh, coming up later on, we have the return of Get It Freshed. But for now, we have to address the monster in the room. Or the monster in the house, as in Monster House, as in uh, the What's in the Box movie from. I don't even remember 2006. how long ago. <laughs> Was that when we pulled it out of the box? <laughs> oh, no. Jesus. It just fell that long ago. Yes. Monster yes. House. Yes, Monster House. Uh, 2006 was when the film came out. It was about three weeks ago now that this was actually pulled out of uh, the the uh, the what's in the box. God, doesn't time fly? Uh, yes, Monster House. It is a uh, animated cartoon brought to you by the, the minds of uh, Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg, uh, distributed by Amberlin. Um, it's got a reasonable cast. Uh, Steve Buscemi, Maggie Gyllenhaal. It's got uh, the fella who used to be Ryan Reynolds before Ryan Reynolds took over his shtick. It's, 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 it's an animated film about a, a monster house, basically. A haunted house that is possessed and comes to life and starts tearing around a neighborhood, uh, eating children and anyone else that decides that they want to come near it. And there's a an old cranky guy called uh, Mr... Nebercracker. Nebercracker. Yes, Nebercracker. Uh, played by Steve Buscemi. He's, he's like the old grumpy guy in the neighborhood. He's always, get off my lawn. Yeah, you've thrown your balls, come onto my lawn. Well, I'm keeping it. And at the beginning of the movie, you start to think, well, maybe he's like a really, really old and grumpy and crotchety young man. And then these three kids go off and investigate. And it turns out that he's actually doing this for the kids' protection because the house itself is possessed by the, spoiler alert, the ghost of his long-since-departed wife, who was a uh, carnival... I suppose she'd be kind of like a, a, one of the fattest women in the world, like you'd see in carnival freak shows, except now she's just kind of someone from New Jersey. Um, but uh, yes. but uh, <laughs> David Marciano is not going to like that joke. Um, <laughs> but uh, what you've got is uh, a rather interestingly animated movie. It kind of reminds me of like a stop motion animation, kind of like The Corpse Bride. It's got that similar kind of style and uh, turned out that uh, the the animation itself was mostly due to motion capture, which is very unusual because usually you get uh, animated movies and it's all keyframed or stop motion animated. It's very rare that you actually get this kind of performance capture going on. So everything has got this really strange, almost dreamlike movement to everything where it's all moving very, very flawlessly but at the same time it doesn't quite feel right with the character models so it's got a weird kind of feel uh in terms of the actual style of it it's very much a haunted house movie the house itself looks very much haunted it's it's got a few creepy little moments that are pretty much straight out of the horror movie playbook you know you've got the the early deaths going in you've got the the investigation into the house and the the quite horrific discovery of the fate of nevercracker's wife um which is a pretty gruesome scene in and of itself yes that definitely had kind of like the ambling 
early Amblin feel to it. You know, the, the whole poltergeist, Goonies, Temple of Doom, that kind of underlying feel to it. But there's actually, there's one name that I did, that popped up at the end, which I had to double check on my MDB. And I know that you hate me doing that, but I had to double check it. Uh, and it's Dan Harmon, mm-hmm. who, uh, for people who don't know, was uh, one of the the duo that created uh, Community, and also Rick and Morty with Justin Roiland. Right. So seeing his name on the right, I think it was the writing credits. Um, that that was a kind of like a oh right, wow. I'm really surprised it wasn't darker. And I think no. that, I think that led into one of the biggest criticisms that I had about the movie is insofar as they could have pushed it a bit more like the first act is pretty slow and i know they're trying to build up the the tension behind everything but kind of felt like the end of it that like the last third was pretty much rushed everything i would love to see more in the house you know maybe have them separated maybe have the house kind of play with them a little bit as opposed to this attempt to just swallow them up and eat them straight away I would have loved to have seen more of that and also a little bit less of the foreshadowing which happens because earlier on in the movie, the two kids, Chowder and uh, DJ, they they end up um, going to a construction yard. And as soon as I saw the bulldozer in that, I thought, I know what they're going to be doing with that later on. They're going to be fighting the house. And then, yeah, at the end of the movie, they're fighting the house. I, I didn't really think it was... Uh, a bad movie. It was f- fun in its way. I thought it could have gone further. It kind of does in a few points. Like there's a there's a joke where they go into the house and there's like a, a net bag full of these glowing red balls in it, and uh, and the the female character I can't remember her name. She goes, um, "Oh, it's a, oh, it's a nuvula, like the thing that you've got hanging down at the back of your throat." And then Chowder goes, "Oh, right, so it's a girl house." <laughs> I thought that was yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was, okay, yeah, that's going to fly over a lot of kids' heads, but adults in the audience are going to get that. I would have loved to see more of that from the script. Very true. I have a bit of love for Monster House. Hmm. It is a bit weird because it is very much an 80s Amblin movie. Except made in the 2000s. Except made in the 2000s. Hmm. But I believe it was actually set in 1983 or something like that. Apparently. But... That doesn't explain why they've got super soakers, so we do need to address that. I think I think super soakers are older than you think. I'm sure they no. are. I would have had one if I was a kid. Well, I remember getting one when I was in Germany in like about 92, 93 with the school. Yeah, but in the 80s they weren't around. Hmm. Sure, Surely I would have had one if I did. I would have been shooting my cats with them. <laughs> um... <laughs> Well, obviously, it's uh, directed by Gil Keenan. You know that name, Steve. As in Keenan and Kel? No? No. no. (laughs) What an utter fail. No. Uh, Gil Keenan, um, no stranger to ghosts and spooky movies because he wrote Ghostbusters Afterlife. Oh! Yes. So uh, he's got a lot to answer for for that ending. But strangely enough, his live-action horror is... Nothing to really sing home about because he uh, did direct the remake of Poltergeist that came out a few years ago that everyone's already forgotten was made. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Guys, if you're ever thinking about remaking 80s horror films, don't. Don't. <laughs> Just, <laughs> don't. You know, and he also, he also directed um, 
a movie I think most people had forgotten about called City of Ember uh, that had uh, Bill Murray in. And it's a very you know, fantastical kids movie, but uh, it's also a bit dark as well. So I think obviously mm. it carries that on. But uh, here are some facts. Ding, 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 ding. As of 2018, this movie is the only motion capture movie to be an original story and not based on source material. Mm. So it does have that going for it. So, oh, the big question then is what came out in 2018 which stole its crown? Hmm. Let's see. What would it be? Uh, If you know, uh, then write on a postcard to anybody apart from us. Well, it's got to be motion capture, so... We want to know so it sounds like our idea and we knew all this stuff. <laughs> um, as we mentioned, this is the, actually the first movie to use Sony's animation rendering software. Oh. Which then went on to make Surf's Up straight after it. Another old favourite of the show. Yeah. Which goes to show that Sony really pushed those adult jokes out there in their oh. kids' movies. What's his name? Uh, is it John Hedder? John Hedder. Yeah, yes. he was in. He was in this as the like the guy in the pizza place, and he was in yes. Surf's Up as uh, Chicken Joe. Yeah. Yes, and uh, even though it's a stop motion animation film, John Hedder still managed to break his ankle on the first day on set by tripping <laughs> over some wires. That is pure Napoleon Dynamite, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I have got a bit of love for Monster House. I watch it every Halloween with Ethan. If there's no Scooby Doo movie on, <laughs> well, I did try and watch it with the kids, and uh, uh, the the lad he wasn't interested. The youngest thought it was too scary, and the oldest was just like, "This is boring," and went off to do something on a tablet. So it just ended kids. up being me. No, well, yeah, sometimes we just prefer that though. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Monster House recommended or not recommended? Yeah, I'd recommend this. Yeah, like you say, stick it on around about Halloween. Uh, I I would like to have seen a bit more, maybe a bit more pace in the first act, a um, little less foreshadowing. But you know, it's fun. Yeah, it, it's 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 a nice little nice little movie with its own little very unique style. Yeah, and there you have it. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, you definitely enjoy it more than what's rounding our anniversaries this week. Watch them again all of the time Or we get them on Prime for free But we only know how old they are When we learn their anniversary I bet you missed that song, haven't you? No. I'd rather have listened to that song than have watched these two anniversaries leading up to today's show. (laughs) (laughs) There's a reason there's only two of them. Uh, because after the second one, I genuinely did vomit. <laughs> and I don't know whether it was bad food or the fact that I just watched these two movies back to back. But yeah, uh, I'm going to start going way back to 1997. Okay. You, you remember 1997? They were the great years. Yeah, the years when I was in college and drinking heavily. And the years where I was not in college, but I was drinking just as much, probably. Yeah. And uh, it was also that era where Jean-Claude Van Damme's career was seriously in the shit. Mm. The late 90s were not kind, were they? No. <laughs> after Street Fighter, or moreover, after Sudden Death, Van Damme's career 
was experiencing a sudden death at the box office. And it all stemmed from pretty much one movie in particular, which I unfortunately had to revisit. It's not The Quest, is it? No. Oh! No. He just about got through with that one and kind of maximum risk, which isn't good, but it was, you know, decent. No. We're talking about Double Team. I I don't even remember this one. Oh, you absolute lucky bastard. Right? <laughs> Double Team was released straight to video in 1997 in the UK, which tells you exactly where we're going right now. Oh, no. The scariest thing about this, right? This is, this is the story where Van Damme plays an international spy. It gets better. Mm. He ends up teaming up with an arms dealer played by Dennis Rodman. Oh! All of a sudden... With the aim of rescuing his family, well, his wife and his unborn child from the bad guy, Mickey Rourke. Right. I still haven't seen it. Now I can picture the poster in my head. Dennis (laughs) Rodman has got sunglasses on and and just like the shock hair colour that he's always got. But if memory serves, it's pretty much the exact poster that he had for Double Impact. Pretty much. But yeah. just with Dennis Rodman instead of another Jean-Claude. Yes. Mm. But thankfully, this is one of those movies where Van Damme didn't have a twin. You know, there always seemed to be a, a spate of certain movies where there was two Van Dams in a movie. It was over either his brother, his clone, him yeah. from the past, his twin brother. From <laughs> the like, past. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Van Damme somewhere in his head believes this is all one universe. But, um, th- I mean, this movie, it was the, um, I guess, the American debut of an Asian director by the name of Soi Hark. Okay. And if you know your Asian cinema, Soi Hark was a god in uh, China. He had done Once Upon a Time in China with Jet Li, uh, mm-hmm. other films like Detective D, uh, Flying Swords of Dragon Gate, The Taken on Tiger Mountain, brilliant movies, really great movies. And then he banked on the Belgian bozo. (laughs) So uh, uh, the things that I will say about this, uh, it was based originally, it was going to be called The Colony. Uh, It was a script that I believe sold for something like 1.5 million. And Van Damme loved it because it's the main focus of the story, which is included in this, is there's this uh, secret island where all of the most... um, uh, the most valuable people to the like governments of the world. So all of your assassins, all of your top agents and all that, that are presumed dead and they're not dead. They're actually alive and living in this island and they use it for um, counterintelligence. The, the thing I always love about this, I mean, I was kind of impressed when I saw it on Mickey Rock's physical appearance because he was seriously jacked up in this movie in a way I'd never seen him before. You know, they have this um, fight at the uh, Rome Coliseum at the end. And uh, he is ripped. You know, he is, he looks seriously good, you know, in comparison to what he looks like now, where he looks like, uh, you know, Steven Tyler in drag. Okay, his his big kind of thing recently was the, well, I say recently, in the last few years, was the wrestler. So Well, that, talking... was, well that was 14 years ago, Steve. 
God, yeah, so it was. Uh, but with we talking like that kind of jacked or like he really, really shouldn't have been sticking that stuff in his butt kind of jacked? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to say that. But he'd got himself in phenomenal shape. And I think, you know, Hollywood had kind of written him off by this point. So, but he actually did his job in this pretty well. And it was actually the last ever movie that has ever been shot in Rome's Colosseum. Oh, now that's a good fact. Yeah. I'm not sure why it deserves to be this movie. I'd love to know if they did something <laughs> that basically has stopped any productions <gasps> happening in the Coliseum ever since. Wait, 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 wait. No, no. Ah, I'm not entirely sure of the details, but if memory serves, they did let them film bits of Jumper at the Coliseum. Uh, I'm not sure... If that's correct, I think it was mocked up, but I, I will have a look into that. Most of it was, but I'm sure I'm I I would put a fiver, no more than a fiver, just a fiver, <laughs> on it being that they let um, Hayden Christensen and uh, Jamie Bell um, or whoever it was that were doing it. I'm sure that they they said right, you've got like an hour to film in here, and you can only film in this area. Oh. I'm sure it was something like that. That could be interesting. We will have to check in on that. Or if anyone out there knows, let us know. Mm. Um, I always reckon maybe it was to do with the Coca-Cola vending machines that was all over the uh, Roman Colosseum, which to me, nah. (laughs) I I don't believe that to be a fact. They had something like eight Coca-Cola vending machines. And it was actually the first ever movie to use Coca-Cola vending machines as product placement in a movie. And it's incredibly obvious. They actually get saved by a Coca-Cola vending machine and the big explosion at the end. Right. Because they use it to protect them against fire in a way that Indiana Jones should be like. I should have thought of that. It's a terrible movie. (laughs) But it's so terrible, it's great. It is worthy of a watch-along at some point. Guilty Um, pleasure? I'd actually call it a guilty pleasure because it is... It's a bit out there. Yeah, there, there are some things in it that are very bizarre. I mean, when you look at it, Sooty Hart must have thought he was on a winner this year, you know, that he did this movie, his first American movie. It's like, this year, John Woo's doing Face Off. Ang Lee's doing The Ice Storm. The Asians are in. Now it's my turn. You've got Van Damme. And he's like, well, it worked for John Woo and Hard Target, mm-hmm. I suppose. Uh, okay, let's do it. What's your script? It's called Double Team. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I can see this. A good buddy-buddy action movie. Yeah, I've, I've done stuff like this. This could work. Uh, who's he buddying with? Dennis Rodman. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's what it is. The absolute worst crime of this movie is Dennis Rodman. It is shocking. Could have been worse. Could have been Steven Seagal. Oh, oh. What? Both of them love uh, love Russia. It's fine. I know. Yeah. The subtitles were invented for uh, Steven Seagal movies because he just gets quieter and quieter. I I gave up after a certain amount of his direct-to-DVD stuff because it's like, if you're not going to bother, Steve, why am I going to watch it? (laughs) You're not not even there for half the shots. It's your standing. But yes, uh, Double Team, probably a so bad it's good. Okay. Um, 
and I watched it again. And the worst thing is, I didn't hate watching it as much as I did the next movie. All right, but, then. Um, I'm going to brace myself then. We actually mentioned this movie just recently on the last episode, funnily enough. Uh, are you ready for this? <laughs> in, in 1987, <laughs> Police Academy 4 Citizens on Patrol was released. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, dear. Yes, we, we mentioned this on our Sharon Stone kind of basic instinct thing last week. Mm-hmm where we had to mention roles that she had actually done prior to uh, landing her role. As Catherine Tremell. As Catherine Tremell. Mm. And Police Academy 4 was one with them. And apparently she only took this gig to get over her first marriage. Really? Yes. Drugs are available. She does know this, doesn't she? (laughs) Yes, drugs are definitely available. I challenge anyone to tell me what the plot of this actual movie is. Uh, because it follows no narrative structure throughout the entire movie. It's supposed to be a Citizens mm. on Patrol program. COP, COP, get it? COP. They're very clever. Um, but other than that, it's just a string of jokes. It's basically the first film all over again, except you've got people that aren't actually cops, and you've got less connective narrative tissue. Yes. And I'll also put it to you, this is the least work Steve Gutenberg has ever done in his life. I can tell you, just from watching this movie, he showed up for two days and got all his scenes in <laughs> and then left the franchise as fast as he could. Disney want me for three men and a baby in next week. No. You know, the old woman the and Tackleberry, can, they can carry the film, it's fine. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Can't remember what her name was. No, no, I can't even. I, I'm... I'm going to say marion davis but marion davis was hooks Hooks, yeah yeah um mrs fudderman was it mrs fudderman feldman mrs feldman i don't know something it could be mrs feldman i I think i think so anyway this was um directed by a chap called jim drake Mm -hmm. uh it was actually supposed to be jay paris jay pace uh but i believe he died just before the movie so it ended up getting uh, the directing reins went on to Jim Drake, who was a TV director. So he directed stuff like uh, Buffalo Bill with Dabney Coleman, which was a series in the US. The Golden Girls, he directed episodes mm-hmm. of that. And the only thing I think I can remember he's ever directed since this was uh, a movie called Cannonball Fever or Speed Zone, if you're in the UK, which is actually the, the third Cannonball Run movie that no one ever talks about because only the chic. Came back for that movie, but it did have John Candy in it, and it had Eugene Levy, and it had great cast, but it just was instantly forgettable. Well, that's pretty much about um, every police academy, realistically. Yeah. After the first two, yeah, they, they, it, it, it was uh, the law of diminishing returns, and it kind of peaked up again with number five because that what, Miami of, Beach, yeah, because no, just hear me out, hear me out. Out of all of them. Um, after like the first two, it had that kind of sweet spot between plot and budget. All right, okay. Because they were both kind of on an even keel, and what was happening in the film, things happened, and then they affected things that kind of came after them. 
if that made sense. And there was a goal for each individual scene. It wasn't just like, oh, there's a joke here, there's a joke there, there's a joke there. Oh, we chase after the bad guys at the end. It was like, okay, there is actually some kind of narrative thing going on. Then after that, the budget dropped out altogether. Yes. The plot kind of made sense, and then we just ended up with Mission to Moscow, which Lee said about that, the better. Yeah, but can I tell you, this one, there is no main bad guy in this one, no, which is isn't. very weird. You know, it, it, that's how much effort they actually put into it. But uh, here are some little-known facts about uh, the only things that are memorable about this movie. This was the last Police Academy movie to feature the Blue Oyster Bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know about that, but yes. not in the way you think. Yeah, uh, This was the movie debut of David Spade, who played one of the skateboarders. Ha. Oh, and Tony Hawk as well. He was one of the skateboarders. Yes, yes. Well, he was kind of doubling for David Spade. Right. And uh, so he made his kind of on-screen debut as a kind of double, but it was also one of the only movies that Tony Hawk's had ever been fired from also. Oh. because uh, he was too tall to double David Spade. <laughs> There's your reason, folks. There's your reason. Wow. And it's still a better performance than the one he did at the Oscars introducing the Bond marathon. Yes, as we mentioned, Steve Gutenberg made his exit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the return of Zed and Sweetchuck, uh, and they ended up in number four for the sole reason because... It was uh, a cartoon, wasn't it? What? It, it was because the cartoon had come out. Ah, well, kind of, kind of. They actually ended up in this movie, which came before the cartoon, uh, because uh, the actor who played Fackler uh-huh. demanded more money, and they basically said no. He lost out on the animated series that followed oh. and the comic book tie-in, and Zed and Sweet Chuck became the main regulars, then moving inwards. Or at least I don't know if they came in back again after this. They weren't in no, the Simon Larry Beach. No, they weren't. No. Uh, obviously, um, there's good and bad about this film. Uh, Leslie well, Easterbrook in the, in the yeah, Leslie yeah, in Easterbrook the in the pool. Yeah. <laughs> You're possibly the most paused moments prior to Basic Instinct <laughs> in history. Oh, back. I think I wore out my VH co- VHS copy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Yes. Funnily enough, it was never rewound, that tape. Whenever it no. went back to the video store. It opens on the exact page. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, the worst thing, and the reason why I threw up, was because I was suddenly reminded of the song Let's Go to Heaven in My Car. Let's go to heaven in my don't, car. Don't, 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 don't. This is, I think, the one chapter of Police Academy, apart from Mission to Moscow, that deserves to be just destroyed. <laughs> yeah, well, well, apart from that kind of like five-second shot, the rest yeah. of it, that can all just get obliterated. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so Police Academy 4 was released in 1987 this week. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so I, I wouldn't exactly call them any recommendations, if you're going to see Police Academy 4, see it only for the fact that the movie makes absolutely no sense. It was filmed directly following Police Academy 3. Yeah. I think it suffered majorly because the original director for it died uh, in the process. So it's just this mishmash of... It feels like one of those movies where you've got a franchise and you've got loads of deleted scenes that never made it into yeah. your own. And they've just glued it all together. 
to make her wake up Ron Burgundy. The the three movies which always kind of followed that type of structure for me were Animal House, Caddyshack, and this, because they all do have a similar kind of setup where you've got a very basic through plot line and then joke scene, joke scene, joke scene, joke scene. And yes. then everything kind of comes together and gets tied up in the end. So it's it, it's a very very kind of similarly set up, but yeah, you're absolutely right. What is in this doesn't make a lick of sense. It has no narrative connective tissue whatsoever, and it's just all it's all it's up in the air. It's it's limp and loose and just doesn't hold much weight. And the end chase because there is always an end chase is just meh. You're in the air now as opposed to in the water. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, and, and that is the only anniversaries for this week. I just want to say a, a little quick uh, something here just before we delve into the realm of good movies that we believe should get freshed. I just want to say thank you uh, to all the people who gave me great hospitality in Los Angeles. I caught up with a large number of our guests from uh, our previous episodes. And uh, it was it was great fun, and it's going to be exciting moving forward. And by the way, the promo went down a storm. Hey! Oh my god, I've never heard Ramon Estevez laugh as much as when he watched that promo. And it's like, you know what? I need to go and make another one. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. We, we do. We need to make all kinds of stuff, cause, and then we can just throw them out on the channel, on the YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, yeah. So if yes. you want us to do more stuff, then you know what to do. Just go onto our YouTube channel, look look us up on there for Bodywood, and then just put in a little comment saying, we want you to do this. Yeah, and, and comment, people. Come on. We, we want to hear from you. We, we want to hear uh, whether you've got to say good or bad. Yeah. If you don't yeah. know where to do it, facebook.com forward slash Pottywood or check us out on Twitter at Pottywood. Come on, it's easy. Or YouTube. That's the easiest place or to YouTube. slang some shit and, yeah. you know, get away with it easily by calling yourself Denise. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, the nephew. Ah. Get it fresh time. Ah, yes, it is back for the threequel, Get It Freshed, a popular favourite for those of you who just love to hear the defence of probably critically panned movies. (laughs) And here I am, well... Right now, I'm in Los Angeles, but you're listening to me from two weeks back, yes. three weeks back, maybe, where I am sat in my living room with Steve Hester. Which which will mark the second time that we've been doing any of these shows together. After that atrocious Deep Rising yeah. episode. It, it's weird doing one of these when you can actually see the person that you're talking to. Yes, you can gauge the reactions to yeah. see if they're actually taking the piss. Yeah. With their selections. So, anyway, what is Get It Fresh, Steve? 
there are movies out there that we each love and they're not always critically acclaimed they don't always get all the awards and they don't always drag in the the big rounds of applause come oscar season uh but they do have a special place in our hearts and this is what this segment is this is where we're going to be looking at films which aren't certified fresh on rotten tomatoes unlike the what's in the box segment uh, but we think should be. We feel that they should be looked at again with a fresh pair of eyes. And yes, mm. they are nostalgia films for yes. me and Steve in some cases. Some of them are films that have just got a little bit of a bad rap. And to be honest, in today's day and age, anyone can go online and bitch about a movie and ruin it yeah. for people. And we're not just talking about spoilers. We're talking about just real over-opinionated assholes who just feel like their opinion is better than anyone else's. And it's not. No. Okay? no. It's o- not. Opinions so, are like arseholes. Everyone's got one. Yeah. People probably will not like the films that we choose. We might not even like each other's choices. No. You never and, know. And even though we're going to be coming out with some films, we're not saying that they should be lauded in the same kind of high regard as something like The Shawshank Redemption. No. We know full well that there are probably going to be a few of these which are absolute garbage. But to us... We just like them. And we think they deserve a better appraisal. Maybe reevaluate that uh, rotten or fresh but not certified fresh. Well, I'm not sure about one of mine, but... Uh, we'll... Oh, no, I, I chose one as well, trust me. But <laughs> films can be terrible, but some films can be great at being terrible. Yes. As, as we have seen in the past. So, uh, I guess I'm going first. Yeah, you might as well. Okay. Okay, Steve, for my number one, I am going with Alien 3, the extended edition. Ah. Not the theatrical. Okay. The, uh, guess what's called the assembly cut, which now has had a bit of a reworking to work out those sound issues. And you can actually watch a full assembly cut that is fully finished now. Yeah, because you can't call it the director's edition because David Fincher has pretty much said that he doesn't want anything to do with this movie at all. Yeah, and that's a shame. That that really comes down to his experience on making his first movie and the brass at Fox who basically were on him like flies on yeah. a rib roast throughout that entire movie. But yes, um, David Fincher, th- this was his doorway into motion pictures. Uh, obviously, some, since then, he's gone on to do Amazing movies. Seven. Mm-hmm. Zodiac. Fight Club. Uh, Fight Club. Social Network. Gone Girl. The list goes on and on. He is a really flawless director nowadays. Yep. He, he makes movies that all of them get certified fresh. And this is the one movie on his resume that unfairly ranks at 45% rotten. Oh, really? Yes. But that is for the theatrical version. Oh. Okay. They don't have a rating for... What the assembly cut, which is now more regarded as the full version of that film. And it is vastly different. This is a movie that is a lot better than its reputation. Yes. No, okay. I'll agree with that. Uh, the theatrical version was terrible. It was choppy. It was almost just a Franken movie. It was just assembled from whatever stuff. You should never let executives and businessmen dictate a movie. Never let them be in charge of uh, the editing process. We're looking at you, Justice League. Yeah. Right? It always is a disaster when that happens. I've never seen any movie 
where an executive has basically who is not a creative has been behind putting a version of a movie and then throwing it out i don't there. even think it's just movies i i can i can probably throw the same kind of criticism against anything any particular piece of artwork where you've had the people that are actually paying for it yeah. sticking the raw in because i can reel off loads of video games that have suffered the same fate because the money men have got involved and they've gone against what the creative idea or the vision should be for the final product and the final product has invariably stank yeah and to be honest it for me personally i look at it and think it was obviously something that was about control yeah you know it, it was david was a fresh face he'd done like music videos that had won awards he was done commercials that mm-hmm. had won awards you know like this is someone we can bring into the biggest one of the biggest franchises that they have apart from star wars yeah at 20th century fox and they could control him on it because they had other directors in there like i think rennie harlan was approached by mm-hmm. it uh, I think they went back to Ridley, they went back to James Cameron, uh, and they thought, okay, let, let's put it on there because I think we can at least control him and make the movie we want to. And there's a fantastic documentary on the Alien Quadrilogy. Yes, uh, yes, there is. That really gets into it. And we've had Ralph Brown on the show. Ralph Brown expressed a lot of things and, and how much pressure David was under. He was going through hell on that movie. The theatrical version that was churned out was a joke. When I saw it in 92, 93, whenever it was that it came out, it was a joke. Yeah, I watched it and thought, what is this shit? You know, and it genuinely was terrible. The assembly version makes this a worthy addition alongside Alien and Aliens, in my view. It's not as glossy. It's nihilistic as hell. Yes. Right? It is grimy, but it has great elements of both Alien and Aliens. So you have the claustrophobic horror of Alien. It feels like you're watching a horror movie, the assembly cut version, because you don't see the alien. It's it's very tight corridors and, and suspense. And you've got the action of aliens. And, you know, they're doing it without the use of guns, right? Yeah. So they have to use, you know, their wits. They have to use very, you know... Um, common style weaponry and it's actually a creative way that they go about trying to get rid of it by yeah. funneling it towards the lead works exactly you know um, some of the shots in this movie are beautifully realised you watch that assembly cut some of the ways that they go about hiding the alien because you don't even see the alien for a good three quarters of this movie mm-hmm. I swore that the end chases and like you finally really get to see uh, this alien uh, this is a movie that has its own style, mm-hmm. you know. And when you look at Alien Resurrection, that went on the 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 kind of French City of Lost Children style. Yeah, you know, with the just Junet's real. Yeah. It, it, yeah, I think that the dark nihilism of it all works in the series' favor to some degree because it has always been a very dark series. It's never been a particularly positive one. No. The success of Aliens when James Cameron was doing it, I mean, it was huge. Mm. It was a huge movie. It was glossy as hell. You know, it was it was full of tech, you know, and that was trimmed down as well. And then the special edition came out and put a lot of, you know, stuff back into it. When the assembly cut came out and I saw the assembly cut, I was like, this, I feel like I was robbed on that original version of it. You know, and a lot of people did. When I spoke with Ralph and he was saying, you know, Paul McGann's storyline was put back in. Yeah. You know? 
and it was greatly expanded. And he says it was such a shame that that was lost. And the thing about Alien 3, it was a very early entry into what we now class as new look realist cinema. Uh, that was hammered even further by um, movies like Seven. That was that really made it more effective. You know, we, we started getting this really dark cinema. Alien Three was a precursor to that. You know, th this was the establishment of uh, the David Fincher style that now everyone copies. You know, everybody copies, and it was it was a down and dirty movie. Um, I'm I will actually say that Alien 3 is a fine David Fincher movie. And it is a shame that he has disowned it due to the experience, the, the studio experience that he had and and what they ultimately did with his vision. A lot of directors would never come back from that. And the fact that he did come back with it was something like Seven, you know, is, is just really showcased. You, you've got an amazing ensemble cast of British lovies. Oh, yes, of course, because it was all filmed over here, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I am amazed that Aid Edmondson and Rick Mail did not end up as prisoners in this movie. They they ploughed every British thespian. Well, Aid Edmondson already find. had his head shaved, didn't he? Oh, he could have easily stepped into that role. Uh, this movie has amazing frenetic camera work when this whole chase scene that takes up the third act. And it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. You know, you've just been chased through hallways. You never know where this thing is going to pop out of. And... For me, when it comes to the Alien franchise, I am actually going to go on record and say that this was the last decent movie in that series. No, I'll agree with you there. It's worth noting that it, it's a very strange movie even prior to Fincher getting involved because the, the script was going through so many different rewrites for so many different people that like you had... Um, uh, people like William Gibson getting involved. Yes, um, I actually read his version of the script. That that was actually pretty. That was actually pretty. Was decent. this the Wooden Planet one, or was no. this when they came to Earth? No, it it kind of pre it predated the Wooden Planet one. It was effectively more focusing around Hicks and Bishop. Okay, all right. Um, it, if this is the, if this is a genuine article, then effectively Ripley just gets uh, taken out of it. Uh, Newt gets taken out of it, and it's all on a space station with uh, Hicks and Bishop, and they've been doing some kind of genetic modification on the alien. I can't remember the full details, because it's been many, many years since I okay. read it. And it kind of gets transported th through the... Instead of it being like a facehugger, gets transported through the air like spores, and people breathe them in, and then that kind of set things in motion so there. Prometheus then kind of yeah <laughs> kind of like Prometheus um, but yeah and then obviously you go on to the wooden planet with the monks which then over time changed into the prison planet yeah. that we end up with which makes more sense than the wooden planet because I've got no idea who the hell was smoking what when they decided that that would make a good concept it's original it's I'll original it yeah it doesn't fit though within the framework of an alien's universe it's like the kind of shock that you get when you go from pitch black to the chronicles of riddick yes because you go from this fairly grounded and realistic sci-fi film yeah to this weird thing where there's a ghost judy dench and there's an alien 
society which travels about in a giant cathedral and it doesn't fit so going from the down and dirty vietnam analogy from aliens yes. to monks on a wooden planet that is a hell of a tonal shift going yeah. on there in terms of the believability of the universe that the film exists in whereas the prison planet that works better you're more than happy to believe that these people could exist on this world that's just out in the middle of nowhere where they just have to refine metal and then that's their penance and their punishment and it just gets sent back so yeah that makes more sense yeah well basically for the first one out of the gate forget it first three uh the assembly cut of yes. alien three theatrical version is still terrible um to this day and i think disney plus are soon going to be putting uh alien three on there and i believe it's the theatrical cut and i'm like why mm. why would you do that it, it should be like Zack snyder's justice league forget that the original version ever existed yeah now and and just stick with the extended version that comes out like they do with all the other alien movies alien special edition now is the version of aliens that we watched no yeah. one goes back to the original version no it's it's the same with a lot of extended cut movies if they're done well like with aliens um that then becomes the standard version of the film like i could not tell you the last time i watched any of the theatrical versions of the lord of the rings no me neither. because they are just now the extended versions those are the only ones that matter um but no, Alien 3, I think that's a good one right out the gate. I agree with you. I, I've always kind of had a soft spot for it. But yeah, the assembly cut vastly improves yes. the film. There's still some people who have not seen it and they, they should go and hunt that down and give it a second view. Get it freshed. Anyway. Okay, so with that in mind, what is your number one? Well, as we I'm guessing we're going from high to low, or are we going from low to high? doesn't matter it's not nominate five it's basically just <laughs> assemble your army and go to war what have we got all right then uh well you know what i'm going to do then i'm going to start off low and end on a high okay i guess me. i'm kind of doing the opposite okay um i'm going to start off with a movie which has got 40 percent on rotten tomatoes now, this is the one which is not really going to be winning many awards across the board okay um it's an early film from jean-claude van damme Ah. It is Bloodsport. Hey! <laughs> Donald Trump's favourite movie. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, God. God, that explains a lot. That's just that's just killed your movie boner. Oh, God, yes, hasn't it? Just Yeah, Bloodsport is a story about a guy called Frank Dukes, who... As in, put is... up your Dukes. <laughs> As in, put up your Dukes, right? Um, who goes AWOL from the army to take part in a martial arts tournament in Hong Kong called the Kumite and then he's got a couple of uh, uh, military police officers that follow him to the event and he teams up with a you know a rough kind of thug and the two form a friendship and then obviously you've got the romantic subplot and I'm not going to beat around the bush this movie has got some terrible acting in it particularly <laughs> from worst. particularly from the lad who's playing the young Frank Dukes what kind of a deal? I wasn't going to steal it. <laughs> it's oh come on. It's it's awful. And even Jean-Claude Van Damme himself, in terms of his acting prowess, isn't isn't at the height of his powers, shall we say? This is no, no sudden death. Um but uh but it is 
it is one of those movies that I remember seeing an awful lot when I was in my teens. And for me, it has got that... It's got a sense of sense of familiarity to it that has carried it through the years. I actually watched this three weeks ago. Oh, did you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's awful. It's a terrible film. But it's still... It still is enjoyable to watch. The fight sequences are really well done. Yeah, that that's definitely what it's got going for it. Yeah, yeah. The performances themselves, not quite as much. Yeah, <laughs> you break my record, I break you like I broke your friend. Point to knee. Uh, it is such a cult classic movie. Oh, cult classic is probably the best example, best word to say for it. It's never going to win any kind of awards. No. The basis for the story itself is sketchy at best. Uh, yes, there is. Yeah, a, I, I recently saw Don the Dragon Wilson on Facebook was talking about this. There is a lot of shadow around uh, Frank Dukes. Yes, he's he's not he's not exactly a. Um, I, I don't really think he's reliable. A, he, he, yes, he's not a reliable <laughs> source of information. <laughs> I think can probably be best described. Um, and it, I think we were talking about the quest at one point. Yes, we were. Yeah, and uh, he was supposed to have uh, been working on that with um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, or at least having the writing credit. So so the two of them fell out. But between the making of Bloodsport and that, they must have had some kind of friendship. So if anyone knows what the truth is behind this, or has got a better idea of what the truth is, it will be jcvd um probably one of the standout moments for it are the two um the the two military policemen starring uh one forest, forest whitaker and norman uh, oh god i can't remember his name either norman i don't i'd seen him in the gumball rally i can't remember what his name is now norman burton norman burton, norman burton. But yeah, um, and those two are the only decent actors in the entire movie. Pretty much. Really. You know, the, the female lead... Uh, no, I, no, I'll go one better. There's one actor who is absolutely amazing. What, Donald Gibb? Uh, no. The guy that steals the entire movie for me in just one... Well, in about five seconds. And it's the little guy who cleans the ring after each fight oh, yes. when he finds the gold tooth. And he picks up the gold tooth. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the bit of acting that that guy was entrusted with for it, and he went all the way with it. Properly owned that. Yeah. Yeah, but the highlights of it really are the friendship between Frank Dukes and Jackson, who's played by Donald Gibb, who is just this typical American stereotype. Beer-swilling, bearded, brawly. You know, he 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 makes up for he makes up for the lack of technique with just sheer strength. <laughs> that's, that's no telling. How did he get selected if it's the best fighters in the world? No idea. He probably nutted someone. Uh, he has two moves. One is punching, and the other is throwing them out of the ring. Yeah. He is basically, Go home! He is basically a Bloodsport version of the Berserker from WWE. <laughs> Pretty much. It's never going to win any kind of best movie awards. And the main reason that he's on this list is that ultimately we will be... Will you shut up, Lizard? It's not going to. Uh, the only reason that it's on this list is because um, it's just 
it's just one of it's just one of my own personal favorites. No, I, I can see that. It's it's a guilty pleasure for me because I know it's terrible, but I will put it on. I love the music of that movie. <laughs> it's it's so bad. You know, it it's got that classic Shadow of the Beast style music yeah. going on in the background. Um the eighties tastic um title music and everything. Yeah, and it doesn't treat its females very well in the movie. No. <laughs> they basically said this chick will bang anybody <laughs> just in order to tell a story. And nothing says it more than the team with the scene where she basically just beds Van Damme and you see him getting out of bed and doing the double dip with his underwear <laughs> to show his butt off. <laughs> just in case you missed it, he does a double dip with his underpants. Which, um, it's like, oh my God, that's that, that's excessive. But the thing that I I always notice about Bloodsport, I, I picked it up because I was listening to it on headphones. It was the first time I'd ever listened to it on headphones. And the scene where they've gone to dinner. Yeah. When you listen to their dialogue in headphones, it is so obvious that they're not in the same room together. <laughs> because it's like they have only had one camera. And they filmed all of hers first, then filmed his second or vice versa. And the dialogue does not match up how they answer each other. No. And no. It, just watch it. You can find it on YouTube. Find that scene. The whole sound mix in general is questionable. And you were talking last week about the ADR on Deep Rising. Yes. This has got some shocking ones. It, <laughs> it really does. does. It does. It's rotten. <laughs> it also has some extremely very weird characters that I cannot figure out why they are in the movie. Like the Japanese businessman who shows up uh, in various scenes... And his only bit of dialogue, you, Frank Dukes, you, good. Yeah. And he has no central plot at all. So, yeah, the Bloodsport is probably my uh, my first entry for today. Well, that's good. Uh, I think it's the only time Van Damme's come up again today, unless you've got even more in your arsenal. Uh, Judging by the smirk on your face, it could be a possibility. Might just have to hold on. Maybe. Okay, well, I guess I better bring in my reinforcement of number two. Mm-hmm. Sitting at 62% fresh right. is the 1986 movie The Hitcher. Oh, I haven't seen it, but I have heard a lot oh, of I did. This should so. just go in the box anyway. Yeah. Um, because... I've learned more about filmmaking and script writing from this one movie alone. And it's not a movie that you would think that I would actually admit that to. But uh, it's directed by Robert Harmon. And his audio commentary on this movie taught me a hell of a lot. And he directed a lot of movies that were very kind of similar. Uh, So he he directed a TV movie called uh, The China Lake Murders starred uh, Tom Skerritt and he also directed a Van Damme movie funnily enough actually probably directed Van Damme's best movie which was Nowhere to Run oh so not Time Cop then no no sorry Peter um, Nowhere to Run was basically a, a remake of Shane and uh, was, was was pretty good um, and he also directed a horror movie called They which is one of the last things I ever really heard of him directing 
But this movie, this to me is Rutger Hauer's finest hour in acting. Yes, everyone says Blade Runner. And I'm a fan of Blade Runner as well and his performance mm-hmm. in that. But the hitcher was Rutger off the chain. Right, it, He brought something to this role that was so sinister. And he doesn't even have that much dialogue in the movie. He's not even in the movie as much as you would think. I think he's collectively in the movie for about 25 minutes. But the movie is centered around C. Thomas Howell, who's this regular guy who's driving a car from one place to another to deliver mm-hmm. it. Picks up the hitchhiker, which is Rutger Hauer, who is a traveling psychopath. He's basically just murdering people. We don't know why. They never explain why. Right? They never explain anything about the motives of what he does. You don't find out anything about this character at all. Really. And that's the magic of it. Because when he is on screen, the tension is incredible. Frightening. Genuinely frightening character. I love watching this movie over and over. And Rutger Howe wasn't even the first choice. No. It was written with, uh, I believe, Sam Elliott in mind. Apparently, uh, he did come in, uh, do a reading for it, and scare the living shit out of the people behind the movie. And then ended up didn't doing the movie anyway. So they went with Rutger Hauer, and it was an amazing choice. Um, stylistically, it's a film like no other, because you do not actually see the murders happen. In fact, you don't really see any of the violence happen. All the killing is done off screen. You come either to the aftermath, and it is so effective, right? Because your mind starts to fill in the blanks, mm-hmm. and you know you see nothing. There's uh, there's a famous scene where um, one of the characters in it is tied between a truck and a trailer. Oh yes, I've heard and, that. And one, it's, yeah. the, it's the infamous scene, and uh, Rutger Hauer is there in the cab, and he's like revving it up, and see Thomas Howell uh, gets in. And he says, okay, <clears throat> all you've got to do is I need you to kill me. But if he kills him, then his foot comes off and it pulls this person in two pieces. And every single person that I've spoken to about this movie was 100% convinced they saw that person get pulled in half. And it's not. It, is never, it was never filmed. And it was addressed even in the audio commentary. A lot of people apparently went up to Robert Harmon and said, no, we saw this person pulled in half. And unfortunately, the 2007 remake with Sean Bean as the Hitcher did do that. And it did show all the killing and all of the... So that's, that's it's probably a false memory from that. It could be a false memory in your part. The thing I love about this movie, and it, as I said before, it has been like a film school for me because the pacing is so confident in this movie. There are scenes that are just allowed to breathe. There is a scene with C. Thomas Howell, he's, he's practically at wit's end, you know, he's been chased by the police, he's close to cracking, and he goes into this diner and he's just sat there. And uh, it, it's just holding on that table for a little while, and he's like rubbing his hands across his eyes, he's exhausted. He takes his hands down and Rutger Hauer sat across from him, just at the table, and the scene is just so calm so collected and so confident and it's one of my favorite scenes of all time the 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 entire script that and the filmmaking behind it 
it's very intelligent and it's very intriguing. It's, it is edited to brilliance. It really is edited to brilliance. And the sound, if, if you listen to it with headphones or you listen to it with a surround system, it is amazing because you are just getting the sounds of this whole desert landscape. Uh, the music is eerie and, and so memorable. And uh, when I say it was like a film school to me, it taught me an incredibly valuable lesson uh, about filmmaking. And that is um, not telling the audience that they're watching a movie. So no tricks like tracking through walls to get through a room, no camera trickery or, you know, these stylistic shots you see in a lot of movies. This made you feel like you were there. Mm -hmm. uh, it made you feel that you were a witness to it. You know, and you know, there's a scene where C. Thomas Howell's character is in the police station, like he's, he's being detained. And um, the only thing it has is while he's asleep, you get this semblance of a dream where um, he sees like the, the hitcher walking alongside his car in the rain, it's all murky, and a knock on the window, and the knock on the window is gunshots, right? And then he wakes up, and then everything's just eerily quiet. So he like just gets up and he walks up to the bars, puts his hands on him, and the door opens. That's like, okay, and that's when you find out that those gunshots was the hitcher just killing all of the policemen in that station. It doesn't show you, but it is an amazingly edited piece of art. That scene, and I get really excited and energetic I can tell talking about it. You've got a massive grin on your face. It, it really is amazing. This movie is so original in its approach and it's never been done since. This is if Jaws was a hitchhiker, right? Right. It's that level of suspense and intrigue and, and it's a white knuckle ride of a movie. And the fact that it does not get the love that it deserves and the fact that it's sitting on 62% is such a surprise for me. I'm thinking not a lot of people have probably seen this movie. But I recommend to everyone. I watch it once a year. It's one of those movies like Heat, uh, Blade Runner, Koyanis Katsi. It's one of those movies I class in that watch it once a year to remind you how freaking good a movie can be. I'm guessing from recent experience that you're going to also going to be adding the Batman to that one as well. Yes, I would. Uh, I'd hold the Hitcher a lot higher than Batman. Yeah. Yeah, which is high praise indeed. But the Hitcher is one of those movies I saw it I saw a glimpse of it as a child and it terrified the shit out of me. And I didn't see it for probably 15 years after that. I wouldn't watch it because for me it was like the scary movie, you know. Um, and when I did fully watch it in its entirety, I was like, this is so different and so good. There's something so original. It, it shouldn't work. It shouldn't work because your main star is not even in the movie. The, the film... This, the character the movie is about is sparingly used in the movie, but when he is on screen, it is outstanding. You brought up Jaws. Mm. It sounds to me like if you think of things like Jaws and Alien. Yeah. Particularly the first one. Um, the Alien, very, very little screen time. Mm -hmm. Jaws, it, the, the shark itself, very little screen time. And I think that helps in those kind of films. Because then you you have the reactions of everyone else, and it's the reactions of the people around, or in this case, the killer, 
um, that help to sell how dangerous the killer actually is. Exactly. It taught me the greatest thing for deeper than six feet. I only know the movie's not been made yet. We are working on it. But it taught me not to show the most horrific part of the story. Let the audience brain implant that picture. Mm -hmm. Because there is nothing stronger. And in this, there's a scene where the hitcher, after he... Um, after C. Thomas Howell manages to escape the hitcher by knocking him out of his car and driving away um, a couple of miles up the road uh, he sees that uh, a family has picked him up mm -hmm. and he notices when the car like overtakes him Rutger Howell is sat in the back with this little child and they're playing in the back and then obviously uh, C. Thomas Howell tries to warn them, he gets knocked off the road and he catches up with the car later on and all you see him is like look through the window and then start throwing up. You don't see anything. You don't have to. Your mind's telling you, oh my God, the most, you know, the horrific most horrific image in there. It is so smart. And it was written by Eric Red, uh, who is a great horror writer. And Robert Harmon, who is uh, an untold master of character and making the scenes work by going in a completely different approach and the hitcher for me um it is an amazing film school of, of how to make an effective thriller work okay and that was sitting on what 62 percent? 62 percent, as it sounds because but it sounds like it should be higher it should be higher i don't think enough people have uh, reviewed it recently because it's not been released on blu-ray as of yet which is shocking that is shocking, because you usually find that something like this would be. Yeah, I, I've wanted it because I would buy it straight away. Uh, I think there was rumour that they are working on a Blu-ray edition of it, and I think right. they're doing the retrospective as well as a tribute to Rutger and stuff like that. I think it is in the works. I'm amazed Shout Factory hasn't released a version of it, because I thought it would have been right up their street. Yeah. But yes, uh, that's my number two. Okay. Speaking of a number two, different than the one you've laid in my toilet earlier on, what have you got? <laughs> Ooh, yes. Um, well, this one is only sitting on 2% uh, higher than Bloodsport uh, with 42%. It's a comedy uh, by David Zucker. Uh, I think I know where we're going. I think so, because you might have also have seen my list earlier. I didn't, actually. Um it's it's one of David Zucker's underrated comedies, and uh, it is Basketball. <laughs> as, as soon as you said it's a David Zucker film, I don't know, I, for some reason I didn't think Top Secret, and straight away I thought, it's going to be Basketball. Basketball, because I've said this before, I think it's a really underrated comedy. It is. It's got Matt Stone and Trey Parker, who most people recognise from South Park. And it was uh, released just as South Park was starting out. Yes. Um, I think the first series was had only just gone out and everything. So as far as the world was concerned, these two guys were just nobodies, really. Um, but you've got them as uh, Coop and Rima. <laughs> yeah, Swish. Swish Rima. Um, who are two guys that come up with this game which combines basketball and baseball, which is apparently based off a real game that the Zuckers came up with 
many, many years ago when they were younger. And I still can't get the rules properly in my head, but then again, I'm not a... <laughs> I don't think we're supposed to get no. the rules of it right. No. Because they're all just made up. Pretty much, yeah. Um, but then they effectively go on to create this uh, national basketball league, and then the whole thing is its a story about against selling out to the man. Yeah. And how sports kind of a, a belong to everyone, not just to the highly paid athletes or to the sponsors and everything yeah. else, which you, know, you can you can see that now, particularly in the UK, you look at stuff like the Premier League. I'm not a big football fan, but I've heard stories about how much it actually costs to get a ticket to go watch a football game. Yeah. And they're ridiculously priced. Same thing with the US. And it's it is a very funny film. Is it one of David Zucker's best? No, because that still belongs to the likes of Naked Gun and, and Airplane, particularly. But it is a very, very funny film. It's got some really, really great sight gags in it. Some rather bizarre ones, including uh, the massively engorged penises of the two leads. <laughs> and when I say massive, I mean down towards the floor kind of massive. Um <laughs> You've got uh, Yasmin Bleeth in there as well. You've got uh, everyone's favourite um, anti-vaxxer, Jenny McCarthy, uh, Robert Vaughan, um, Ernest Borgnine in one of his later roles. And everyone in there is cast really nicely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 I had a conversation with David about this uh, moment last time I spoke with him just recently. Because uh, I watched basketball again. All your choices I have watched again recently, which is very weird. Have you been spying on me? No, no I just watched the same movies in a cycle. Um, but I actually freeze-framed and got a picture of him because David has an appearance in the movie as, as the, the hot dog eaters. Hot dog. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, yeah. Um, it, it's just one of those movies that is so funny. I remember the first time I saw it. Not long after it came out on video, because we didn't get a theatrical release of basketball. It came out direct Straight to, to video yeah. here in the UK. And for some reason, I always, I always wanted to see it. And I think it was because South Park was pretty big around the time. So I think it was 2000 that I saw it. And uh, I will never forget the roar of laughter, the same as you on UHF, right, that I had. On the Unsolved Mysteries segment with Robert Stack, when he said, This is what he could look like today, and a picture of Mr. T came up. <laughs> I have never howled so loud in a group of other people in my life. I missed the rest of the movie because I was still giggling yeah. for the remainder of the movie. Yet again, that's a good example of the, of the, the sight gags that are in this. You know, if you... I were a woman, I'd love to be his girlfriend. <laughs> uh, and the the recur the recurring double entendres, which are never fully fleshed out. Uh, you can uh, how how about you uh, lay my carpet if you know what I'm saying? And then <laughs> it, my, I think my lobby needs, needs buffing. <laughs> and then it cuts to Jenny McCarthy, and she's got one of those floor buffing machines, and she's in like a tiny red dress. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Robert Vaughn stole that entire movie. Oh, totally. Totally. And with the, the, speaking of which, Robert Vaughn in his collection, he's got all these sports memorabilia, and it's a return appearance by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yes. Who's just sat there in just a cabinet. <laughs> and then you see him clocking out at the end of the day a little bit later on. I love his, his reaction to uh, everything that Matt Stone 
and uh, Trey Parker. Trey Parker says is like Bill Daly's reactions to me when I recommend movies he hates. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> but <laughs> there's, uh, there's a couple of side gags involving um, Robert Vaughn that are just genius in that movie. It, throwaway gags, really just throwaway oh, gags, yeah. but they're so great. Where he's trying to show them uh, in a magazine, he says, uh, "What I think you need is these," and it's like corporate sponsorships or something like that. He said, "You want me to get bigger titties?" What? No. no. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I can't agree more. Basketball is one of my like favorite movies, and I know Bill hasn't seen that movie. I've got to actually watch it with him. I think it is because it just flew under so many people's radar that most people don't even know that it exists, let alone have even seen it. And you think that, uh, given how big South Park was... Yeah. Um, you know, because around about the time, they, I think this was like the third movie that they'd done. They'd done like Cannibal the Musical. Yes. Um, Orgasmo. And yes. then this. And then it was South Park, the yeah. movie. And yeah. Team America, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they started off from the trauma... Uh, camp, which was where uh, Cannibal the Music, or Alfred Packer is, is yeah. known also. I actually think that Matt Stone and Trey Parker work really well in this movie. <laughs> yeah. They're but, really good as they're really good as the leads. They both come off as uh, likable. They've got some great comic timing, not just in the fact of their delivery, but um, but in the, the the interplay between the two of them. And I often think you can genuinely tell when there is real chemistry between people and when it's trying to be faked. Yeah. And there's there's an awful lot of that, and also with the the guy who plays Squeak, um, I can't remember his I can't remember his name, but um, Squeak little bitch Scolari. Yeah, but he's yeah again he's one of their friends as well, so they you can tell they've got the shorthand with each other as they're going through this, and yet again him being the butt of all these jokes, he's got some brilliant sight gags himself, like going spinning around in the the machine uh, where he when he meets the. Um, when he meets the the, the the transsexual, the transvestite later on in the movie, and uh, he's celebrating the win at the end, and she's just lifting him up in the in the air <laughs> like a rag doll, and he's jumping up. Yeah, uh, what, what a great movie! And we're, we're still waiting to hear from David if he's actually managed to get the uh, the series of basketball off the ground. Hopefully oh, I'd love we'll to a, see that. We'll uh, we'll have an update on that at some point. Uh, good choice for your second, though. Yes, thank you. See, as yours are rising up, mine are kind of going down, so it kind of balances out, hopefully pretty nice. All right, so, so what's your number three, then? My number three? Okay. <clears throat> this is a polarizing movie, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, sitting at 40%. So I'm, I'm matching Bloodsport, I guess. <laughs> right? Oh, dear. But in no way... This film has a lot more quality than Bloodsport has, I believe. It would be uh, Brian De Palma's 1998 movie, Snake Eyes. Oh, Nicolas Cage and Gary Sinise. Yes. Uh, which is surprising that it is this low. Um, but it has some kind of history to it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, Brian De Palma, uh, he, is, he was like the modern day Hitchcock, really. Mm. So he had his movies like, Dressed to Kill, amazing. Body Double, amazing. The Untouchables, out of mm-hmm. this world, amazing. And then afterwards, you, you had Femme Fatale, which wasn't really a great movie. 
didn't he direct Scarface or am I getting confused um, yes he did he did yes. yeah, I don't go. know why I left Scarface off there but I think that was just too obvious that was a low hanging fruit um, many people don't feel this is a good movie and I disagree okay, okay. I, I do disagree it is a movie that it's a, it's a mystery to be unfolded movie and it's set within real time apparently uh, which I didn't f- fully realise until I, I did a bit of reading up on it. But it is actually set within uh, a real time, even if you can pretty much figure out very easily within the first 30 minutes who the main bad guy is. Yeah. You know, um, and if Will Smith had have taken that role instead of Gary Sinise, then it probably would have thrown people. But Will Smith decided to go and do Enemy of the State. Which I which, do think is the better out of the two of them. It is the better out of the two of them. It is, but you know, I guess Will wanted to be maybe the star of the movie and didn't feel like being uh, second fiddle to Nicolas Cage. Who knows? Um, the style of this movie is undeniable. It's Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he is the master of style, and I do feel that this movie was caught between two very different scripts. Yeah, it it feels like it wants to be bigger than it is. It feels like it wants to be a much grander story, but it's hemmed in by budgetary reasons or whatever the the final final yeah. reasoning was. It, well, the end of the movie was supposed to be a giant tidal wave that comes in and engulfs uh, the whole place, you know, the whole casino, and there was they they shot it and they shot all the water going through and wrecking the casino and and stuff like that, and then they changed the ending. For reasons I still do not know why. No. But you'll see a scene in the version that is out there that you can watch where you'll see an ambulance that is driving along and then suddenly this giant tidal wave's like coming in behind it. That's the only thing that survived and then they decided to go for this like end reveal and uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, I won't spoil it, but it is Gary Sinise. It's the other famous person in the movie, basically. (laughs) Um, so I, I think this was kind of a victim because right leading up until that ending, um, it has all the trademarks of a classic Hitchcockian style thrower. And um, it was it's become more famous now because of the 15 minute tracking shot at the beginning. Which isn't a is full. not. No. No, it is no, it not. Isn't. There are very subtle edits in there that you can make out. If you are really looking, very cleverly done, yeah. very cleverly edited, uh, but I would say probably only about maybe seven minutes is a continuous shot before an edit comes in. I mean, straight away you're on the monitors, and then from the monitors it pans up, and Nicholas Cage is there. There is an edit straight away from there. Yeah, that's usually when you'll find edits in those kind of sequences. Is it's usually if there's a whip pan. Or if it's, uh, or if you're crossing like a door jam or something yeah. like that, that's usually the point where they will cut because then they can just, if they've got the right kind of rig going with it, then they can just have like a, some kind of motion control or something similar to just pick up exactly where it is that they left off, yeah. and then boom, it it can work out seamlessly because yeah. that's what they did with 1917 as well. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's some people out there who say, "Oh my god, that thing's for no, it's not. There's there's very subtle." There's very subtle edits in there. You can make them out. They're just very well done. Back in 97, 98, when this movie was made, you know, they didn't have the, the seamless technology they have now to make everything all as one. 
you know, so a lot of credit there to the editor of this movie. Um, Nicolas Cage in this movie is off the chain, right? The, the opening moments right up until uh, the main like crime happens and the shooting assassination happens at the beginning. He's on fire. He's doing the cage rate. You know, he's doing his thing. But he does it so much throughout this movie, you actually want to see him get the shit kicked out of him. And he does. Mm. <laughs> yeah, know? he does. And it feels justified when it does happen because he is playing a character that is really, really annoying. Um, it has some amazing uses of camera work. There is a beautiful shot when um, Carl Gugino... Uh, she's hiding out with this guy in a room because Gary Sinise is walking around with a silencer and he's he's kind of looking for her. And as he's in the hallway and he starts listening through doors, it pans up over and it goes over all of these different hotel rooms. We're looking at a bird's eye view mm-hmm. as it pans over all these rooms and you see all of these people and what they're doing like in these hotel rooms and all that until it gets to their room and comes back down. I thought that was such an amazing shot to do. Um, absolutely loved it. And this movie is very, it's shot like a very forties film noir movie. Yeah. It's got amazing style, even the music, which is really like overblown, <laughs> you know, in places it doesn't fit really, but it has that style and very good use of like people's shadows and stuff like that uh, that you will see like towards the end of the movie. It, it screams movies like Naked City, Asphalt Jungle, um, movies along that line, you know. And it's all kind of set in this one location, which is this casino uh, where it has the fight arena in it and has a hotel. So it's all set in one building. It's very has a very claustrophobic feel. The movie itself, uh, the the plot and everything is not very fresh. No. It's the wrapping around it, right? the style wrapping that it comes in. Yeah, I it, it I would argue, though, that the the style, it sometimes it kind of gets in its own way. Mm. Uh, th- with a lot of it, there are some there are some shots where, like you said, the music is a bit overpowering and there's sometimes where the visual effects, or the, the visuals in general, don't really work with the way that the scene is. And it's, even though for the majority of it, it does feel right it feels like there's something kind of missing from it there is something missing from it i mean make no mistakes the style and the filmmaking craftsmanship is what makes this worthy of revisiting and looking Mm. over Uh, and some of the performances as well Uh, but there is something missing but not something i feel that it deserves to be sit at 40 percent. no it is better than 40 percent yeah there, there is no way that this is in the same league as Bloodsport <laughs> for a start. No, because right. it's got competent actors in it for a start off. Oh, it's got amazing actors. I, I'm still questioning why John Hurd is credited third in the or third or fourth in the cast, and he's only in the movie for like five minutes. Um, I don't know. He's sag rules. I don't know. It's the same yeah, reason that Danny possibly. DeVito got top billing, and he's only in it for like a minute and a half in Mars Attacks. <laughs> yeah. But you also have um, everyone's favourite Puerto Rican actor. Luis Guzman? Yes, Luis Guzman. Uh, he's in there playing, uh, well, Puerto Rican. Yeah. <laughs> Not going against type there. John Leguano wasn't available, obviously. Uh, you've got Stan Shore in there um, playing uh, the boxer. 
and uh, there was another movie he played a boxer. For some reason, I want to say it was Harlem Nights, just to go with our uh, David Marciano book <laughs> yeah. from the other week. Um, you, you just have some really nice, uh, tight performances in there, but it's the craft. It's mm. the craft of this yes. movie. It is so well made, as, as De Palma really you know, w- was making the great movies. Um, and, and this was... Like I say, this is a movie that was struck by circumstance. I don't know why they decided to change the ending on it. Uh, for one, that it doesn't really gel as well as what was perceived. Mm-hmm. I just think that there's something about this movie that deserves uh, a really good revisit uh, and judging differently. Yeah. Yeah, because like you say, the the actual, the, the technical elements of it all work. I think it's the, I, I don't think there's enough depth to the story itself to make it as interesting as it could be. No, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about <laughs> the, the illegal sale of rocket systems you uh, know, and wrapped up in an assassination uh, into here a, comes um, the pain man which is a, a line from Carlito's way yeah by Brian De Palma um, it, it, it's just something that deserves a bit more credit and yeah. to be honest Nicolas Cage was on fire at the time because he'd just come out of um, he was between face off Bringing Out the Dead, Gone in 60 Seconds. This was the patch where he was doing all his movies, Con Air. He was the Hollywood A-lister. He was Mr. You know, he was the number one instead of this, I guess, who he is now, which is, <laughs> I don't think we really know what he is. He's this no, he, magical, mythical creature. Unlike Bruce Willis, he, he I think he's trying to get into mainstream, but he just... He, He's having to pay back all these debts, and I think the, the, the mainstream ones are eating up his cash flow. The difference between Bruce Willis and Nicolas Cage, apart from obviously, you know, what is obvious, is the fact that Nicolas Cage's projects that he's choosing are really interesting ones. He's just done yeah. Pig, which is an amazing movie. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. He did Mandy before that, which was surreal but brilliant. You know, and he's doing movies that are very different. Bruce Willis is showing up for an hour, shooting a couple of mumbled lines, taking his million and going home. Bruce is not putting effort in them. Um, so that thing you sent to me to watch. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that, it, that it video. Underscores it, and it's sad to see. It's like, Bruce, you were the man. And you're worth more than this, if anything. You know, is it because John McClane is so dead in the water after A Good Day to Die Hard that now he just doesn't care anymore? He didn't care during Good Day to Die Hard. No one cared during yeah, Good Day to Die Hard. No. But, uh, yeah, so Snake Eyes is my number three. Mm, okay, well, that is that is that, that was one of the first DVDs that I bought. Funny I think, enough, it was one of the first ones yeah, I bought as well. I think I got that and Ronin. Good choice. Yeah. One of my winners from the last one. Yeah. Ronin as well, yeah, like Andy said. Brought that up last time. Go watch it. Brilliant. John Frankenheimer. Um, okay, so my number three. Um, I'm going up as Andy's going down. So this one is sitting on, let me get my pad, 65% Ooh, fresh. Highest, highest rate so far. So far, yeah. It was is an underrated one. 
Uh, it's a comic book adaptation. And uh, it was one that kind of came out and divided audiences quite heavily. Um, I'm coming down on the side as I like it, but some people kind of quite rightly, I can see why they would hate it. It's Watchmen. I love this movie. So do I. So do I. Um, have you read the comic? Yes. Yes. Um, it is divided into people that say that it is too close to the comic versus people that say it's not close enough. Um, I personally think it strikes a really good balance eliminating things which don't really make a huge amount of sense like the alien, like Ozymandias's plan to unite the world superpowers during the, uh, the later days of the 80s and the Cold War by having this alien invasion kind of come out of nowhere. Replacing that with Dr. Manhattan felt tidier in terms of the plot. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's missing things like Tales of the Black Freighter, subplots. No, I actually so prefer on. the Ultimate Edition that actually has that included in it. I have not actually seen the Ultimate Edition. It's far better. I've seen... It's amazing. It's an, it's an experience, that movie. I have seen Tales of the Black Freighter, because that was released separately mm-hmm. on DVD. So I've seen that, and I've seen the main one. Um, but yeah, I mean, the film itself, for those of you who don't know, it takes place in an alternate version of the 80s where superheroes were real. Uh, they all got outlawed um, because of various uh, political reasons. And now it's about a, a small team of, uh, of former superheroes, uh, led by Patrick Wilson, Carla Gugino. Yeah. Again. Uh, Maylin Ackerman, who I was going to say kept a kit on, but I just remembered she, no, didn't, she didn't in this one. And uh, everybody's second favourite Freddy Krueger, Jackie Earl Haley. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Out of two. As, uh, <laughs> yeah. As, uh, so far. Rorschach, the, uh, the one with the, the moving face. Watching the movie, having read the comic, you can see that Zack Snyder, just like he did with 300, was able to take pretty much the individual comic panels yes, and use those as the storyboards for the actual film. A lot of the shots are more or less nigh identical with the panels in the comic and I think that's where a lot of the comic fans got a little bit pissed off because I think they were expecting something a bit more, a little bit more experimental, but at the same time, he was never going to please everybody. No. Uh, Zack Snyder has that divide. He does. Yeah. Unjustly, in that case. And it's happened since Dawn of the Dead. Pretty much. That is when these armies just basically started coming out. And it was a lot of it was based off love of Dawn of the Dead. And, oh, you know, what's he done with it? And it's like, you know what? I actually did like what he did with Dawn of the Dead. And it took nothing away from the original no. for me. Um, you know, 300 he, w- he was lauded for. Uh, rightfully so. It's yep. not one of my favourite movies. No, but uh, it is a it, it is an absolute gorgeous, oh, gorgeous film. Zach cares about his movies. When Watchmen came along, I had a friend who went to see it uh, the day before I went to see it, and he knew I was looking forward to it. And he was like, "It's all right, but manage your expectations." Right? Mm-hmm. I saw it and I was like, I love this. And I was just like, oh, you know, it's, it ends on, it just ends really flat. So, no, it doesn't. It ends perfectly. Yeah. 
when the ultimate cut came out and I'd seen Tales from a Black Crater separately. Um, but when the ultimate cut came out and I saw it, I was like, this is brilliant. I, I, I don't care what anyone says. This is, it's the anti-comic book. It is. Right? It is the anti-superhero yeah. you comic know, and, book. And if, if you had kind of a Mount Rushmore of, of comic books, you would probably have this, uh, Dark Knight Returns. Yes, definitely Dark Knight Returns. Um, Death in the Family. Death in the Family. That's two Batman ones. So, <laughs> all right, fair enough. I'm just trying to think if there's any from from Marvel, really. I guess you'd say uh, the Infinity. The the, 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 the thing. Uh, the I think maybe the movies made that even more relevant. But yeah. Watchmen, um, is. One of the most intelligent movies. I'll agree because more than anything else, it paints these these superheroes as very, very flawed. Yeah. Very, very human. And a lot of them don't have superpowers. They're they're kind of just like mass vigilantes more along the lines of Batman as opposed to anyone that can kind of fly. I mean, the big one out of all of them is uh, Dr. Manhattan. Who gets yeah. his powers as a result of a of an accident? You know the standard comic cliche: "Oh, you fell into a vat of acid, or it was a nuclear accelerator, or whatever." So he's the only one that actually has superpowers. Uh, an argument can be made for Ozymandias because I think he's supposedly got like super intelligence. Yeah, uh, look at the characters. Now, I think that the main reason being, I mean, this was around the same time as the Dark Knight came out. Yeah, I mean it was it was practically right on the heels of it, as I remember. And then you had Iron Man, and then you have something like Watchmen come out, right? And people are expecting it to be the superhero. A superhero is a superhero to people, you know. They, it's all about you know they're flawless, they're cool, they're a certain healer. The characters of Watchmen are deeply flawed people. Incredibly flawed, right? Um, they're the psychopathic. They are, you know, the mentally scarred. They, these are not glorified heroes. Watchmen set the stage for a lot of stuff that came afterwards. Yeah, such right. as most recently stuff like The Boys and Invincible yes. and yeah. stuff like that. It, and to be honest, a lot of people said, oh, Zack Snyder shouldn't have touched that. No, Zack Snyder was perfect yes. for that movie. right? And ever since then, people will jump on Zack Snyder and a lot of the time it's not his fault it's his studios right that he works for people were incredibly unfair to Sucker Punch I think Sucker Punch was I'm not seeing that an amazing piece of work I, I I really love it Legend of the Guardians uh, The Owls of Ga'ul right I love that movie I honestly think it is an amazing movie the critics jumped all over that Batman vs Superman they jumped all over it right mm-hmm. And when Snyder's version of the movie came out, the extended one that put loads of storylines back in, it's like, wow, it's actually really good. Right? Yeah, because you're starting to realise, okay, this guy's actually paying a lot more attention yeah. to what it is that he's putting out than we thought he was. Now, I will say that there's there's some things that Zach has done. Army of the Dead recently, I thought was way too long. Right? That is a movie that should have been two hours, and it wasn't. It was nearly three. Mm. And it was drawn out... Um, it wasn't for me, you know. It, it didn't really 
do it for me. But Snyder Cut of Justice League is a masterpiece. Right? It really is good. It's not getting as much critical love. It's better than... You look at the movies that get put out where Zack Snyder has not had the creative control of them. They suffer. Yes. And they're hated. And a lot of the backlash that Zack gets is because of those versions of those movies. When his extended versions come out, um, they're more critically praised and accepted. Because Zack is a man with a vision. Do I feel that sometimes he needs a studio presence over him to rein him in a bit? Army of the Dead has shown that for me. Yes. I think Netflix gave him too much free reign and the movie was long and drawn out as a result. Uh, I would still actually say, looking at his output from Man of Steel, Batman vs Superman, I don't necessarily think that curtailing his artistic vision is a good idea because I think he really does have a good idea of how he yeah. wants these movies to be. But I do think that in terms of the runtime for something like Batman vs Superman, that needed to be that needed not necessarily shorter, but there were lots of trims that could be made. Yeah. I think it's not necessarily taking huge chunks out, but I think it's more like death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's yeah. it's a little second or two here just to tighten it, things yeah, up a bit. There's more. definitely some things that can be. I know Zach wanted to establish you know, his universe, stuff like that, and he did to an extent, and it's yeah. brilliant. That is, you know the most successful version of the DC universe and now they're kind of building around it and away from it and in other avenues and things like that and you can't take anything away from that. I just feel that Zach doesn't need someone to cut his legs off, but I do think he needs someone who is supported there to say, okay, Whoa, realistically, boy. you need yeah. to, we need to take this down a little. Yeah. I'm not stifling your creative vision, but I think it's like me. If I write a script... If I write it over 120 pages, I can have someone like Brett who will come in and say, it's too long. You need to take this out. This scene you've got here, you can do something better with that and take up less page. And he was right. you know. And I did it. And now with the script that we've got now, it's the best version of that script that I've ever seen. But it took a lot of taking away initial thoughts I had. You do need um, an editor. Yeah. Basically, on your work and your vision, you do need someone to rein it in and say, it can be so much better if you're open to the idea of trimming this down. And it's true. And that's something that a lot of creatives don't like because they feel they're being, you know, given the, the, the bump off the glass ceiling. They think they're stifling their creativity. It's not. They can make it a lot better. And I think with... Zack Snyder, I know we've gotten away a bit from Watchmen. Yes. But I think that is uh, the case with Zack Snyder. Anyway, Watchmen. Yes. And, uh, well, we've pretty much pretty much summed it up right no, there. Sorry, you know, we, you've we certainly hijacked doing that my bit. whole yeah. thing on Zack. Yeah. Well, at least we didn't get into Dr. Manhattan's penis. <laughs> uh. Now with even more penis. Uh, so, yes. Um, Watchmen. No, I, I agree on your Watchmen. Uh, I, I would say that deserves a higher ranking also. But maybe it's because... Do you reckon because the extended editions don't really get rated? That could be it. That could be it. Because like, we opened this episode with um, with Alien 3. I think you end up with a release of a movie. And unless it's kind of really high profile, like, uh, like with Zack's version of the Justice League, yeah. it's not going to get anything else. No. But uh, I'm in full agreement... There's no way you're going to be in agreement on uh, my fourth, by the way. 
I'm not even sure I am. Okay, so I've got my lowest rating. <laughs> I think you've got your highest rating. I've got my highest next, yeah. Ah, oh, great. Okay. I'm going to get so much flack for this. And I want to say straight away, it is an absolutely terrible movie. But it is so terrible, it goes right around to great. Because it's so terrible. Kind of like with uh, Bloodsport. In a way, yeah. yeah. But this ranked lower than Bloodsport. Oh, God. Sitting at 33% oh, rotten. Yeah. This might be the lowest one yet. So... Back in 1991-92, a movie called Stone Cold was released, <laughs> right? Now, I'll forgive you if you've never heard of this movie. No, never heard of it. And a lot of people have probably forgotten about it. It was directed by an old friend of ours by the name of Craig R. Baxley. Now, we have mentioned Craig R. Baxley on our show in the past before, but he has been the director of such legendary movies as Action Jackson with Carl Weathers. Yeah. And Dark Angel with Dolph Lundgren. Mm-hmm. So he was obviously the... the uh, before the days of Millennium Films when they would make all of these movies with uh, the 80s action stars, uh, I guess there was Craig R. Baxley. And uh, he also did, um, he kind of started out as kind of working stunts on Predator. Right. And obviously carved his career out of making movies like uh, Action Jackson and Dark Angel and and Stone Cold. So Stone Cold was uh, created with one purpose in mind only. And that is to make uh, NFL football star Brian Bosworth... Boz, to his friends, fucking Boz, into an action movie star, which failed spectacularly with a movie called Stone Cold. (laughs) Basically, the guy, all muscle, all mullet, that one of the greatest mullets in movie history. I can picture it already. And has a pet lizard to boot. The scene in this movie early on, when he is... Baby all to hell, and he's just wearing black jockey briefs. Is f-ing hilarious. Like he is smuggling bananas in his f-ing apartment. Uh, this movie is about uh, Boz, who is a police officer. Not or, Tom Bosley. Oh, no, he's basically the the renegade cop that we see in all of Craig R. Baxley's movies. <laughs> who ends up going up undercover into a Hells Angels group. Can we not just have a normal cop that plays by the rules? No. Just once. So this guy's all denim, leather jacket, mullet. (laughs) Sunglasses on in in the middle of the night, yeah. And this movie is over the top to a level I have never seen in a movie before. And when your bad guys are Lance Henriksen who leads the the Hell's Angels style gang and his right hand man is William Forsyth and uh, basically the, the Hell's Angels in this movie they're going to kill a politician in Washington DC 
and they have like a gun running operation and stuff like that. That is literally the only plot I know of of these bad guys. Um, right. That's that's all you need to know, really, because the entire movie is about Boz. Boz, he can walk and talk, and that is gimmick. <laughs> so he can't chew anything, bubble gum at the same time. Then. No, any, anything past that, he struggled. He's also has an earring in throughout the entire movie, um, and where he wears an expression on his face like he's confused over what's happened to his lunch money all week. <laughs> you know, he's, he literally has the kind of uh, scowl. You're looking up Brian Bosworth. I am you? though. Yeah. So put Bos Stone. Well, Brian Bosworth Stone Cold, just so you can get the image. Oh, there's a there's a 2005 TV movie starring Tom Selleck called Stone no, Cold. No, I guarantee you that was better. Oh just put yes. Brian Bosworth Stone. Oh Cold. my God, it's even That's more perfect than I could possibly imagine. Picture? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so like, Doug the Bounty Hunter. If he was perfectly groomed in baby oil. Now, he's got more chemistry with his pet iguana than he has with the female love interest in this movie. <laughs> Who, it, it's kind of absolutely shocking. Um, Bosworth walks through this movie like a poor man's Patrick Swayze. He actually looks like Patrick Swayze. <laughs> yeah, Patrick Swayze had talent. In that, in that shot, he looks like Patrick <laughs> Swayze. Um, this movie... Is not gonna win any Oscar, no. <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. It wasn't designed to. The movie has absolutely no redeeming characters in the entire movie, and it follows this trend that was set in Dark Angel. In fact, you could swear. Did you ever see the movie Dark Angel? No. You know, I come in peace. You know that one with Dolph Lundgren. No. If not, I'm gonna tell you about that one next. Yeah, he's got all of the classic tropes. So he's got the nerdy FBI partner who, you know, he's a by-the-book guy. The levels of action in this movie grow more and more preposterous as it goes along. Mm. But the opening scene seals it for me because they do the exact same scene in Dark Angel, <laughs> directed by Craig Arbatsy. So, uh... You okay? Yeah, sorry. I'm you getting emotional win. talking about Stone Cold. <laughs> so there's, uh... A moment where uh, basically it's a store hold-up. So you get the usual people going yeah. in, holding up a store, and then Maverick Cop shows up, takes them all out, and saves the day. You've seen it in everything. Even Loaded Weapon 1 did a perfect parody yeah. of it. Now in this one, when the opening shot of a store robbery involves someone using a pump-action shotgun and shoots a shelf full of Ritz crackers, that Sells it for me. <laughs> you you just want them to destroy crackers, don't you? Yeah, it, it was brilliant. The first shot he fires off, he shoots a box of Ritz crackers. And it's like, there is no way this movie is ever going to recover. And uh, you, you know you have a winner. And the, the bad guy looks like Kyle Mooney from Saturday Night Live. It's weird. It's like if Kyle Mooney lost his job at Saturday Night Live and and went down the wrong path. He would look identical to the guy who was holding up this store. Uh, Stone Cold is so bad, I want to do it as the next watch along. That's, that's how terrible this movie is. For God's sake, you have the one of the biggest stunt scenes at the end. A guy gets shot off his motorbike. It flies through the window of a building and takes out a helicopter. 
in a way that it shouldn't take out a helicopter. It should not explode into millions of pieces in the air. All it did was a, a regular motorbike just flying out of a window into a helicopter. Well, it sounds like Len Wiseman decided that he was going to improve on that by firing a car at a helicopter in... Uh, oh, in Die Hard 4. Yeah, in Die yeah. Hard 4. Um, Stone Cold pretty much killed Brian Bosworth's action movie potential. Uh, I think the next time I saw Boz was in uh, Adam Sandler's version of The Longest Yard, where he right. played one of the prison guards. Uh, I think he did, he did another action movie about four years later <laughs> called One Tough Bastard. Okay. Um, Boz, if you're listening, congratulations on you know following through your dreams. Please stop. Following through being the right word with this movie. Uh, but yeah. It's it's a movie that's so bad, but I can't help but watch it when it's on. Because it comes from an era when those type of action movies would come out. And they weren't canon action movies. No. That were terrible. Delta Force 2, 3, American Ninja 4, 5, 18. All that, all that stuff. This was a studio movie. This was done by um, either Columbia or TriStar, one of them two. And um, it's so over the top that it is great. It's great at being so bad. But you, you've just got to watch it for the one scene where you get Boz in his banana hammock. <laughs> <laughs> Try to look as macho as you can in a pair of... Uh, Budgie smugglers. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, so uh, I hope you can save us from that one, Steve. Oh, God. Well, hopefully I can. Um, because this is uh, this is going to be the last one. It's also the highest rated one which we've got on the list, or I've got on my list anyway, with 68%. Ooh. So it's almost in fresh territory. Just another, what is it, another 7% or whatever it is. Like that. Whatever the review I aggregate have seen is on there. some films at 72 that are certified fresh, though. I think it's all to do with reviews and stuff like that. Anyway, um, this has been a favourite of mine. This has always been a favourite of mine. It was one of those movies that they used to show on, on usually on a Friday on BBC One. Usually had the same kind of time slot that Tremors would have. All right, okay. Yeah, that kind of thing over here in the UK. Um, it's definitely one of my favourite comedies. I usually go back to it time and time again. It is Clue. You know, I actually watched this for the first time last year. Did you? Yes. With all three endings. With all three endings, yes. Um, well, it's just a quick plot synopsis. It's Cluedo. That's it exactly. You know, you've got a group of uh, six different strangers. Sorry, eight different strangers. Uh, all arrive at this house. Uh, they all start getting bumped off one by one. Um, there's a big mystery as to who it is that's actually doing them and why, and there's stories of blackmail and subterfuge and all the rest of it, and yet there are three different endings. Uh, originally, when the movie came out in cinemas, you would have one cinema which would be showing ending A, one B, one C, um, and I think they would even alternate on different times. So the three endings are, um, well, it's B now. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, yeah. The three endings are uh, Mrs. Peacock, uh, <laughs> Miss Scarlet. Sorry, I had to think then. 
and then them all doing it with with the exception of uh, Michael McKeon's uh, Mr. Green. Um, I'd love to actually get Michael McKeon on the show. I think you've said this once before. I really would do. He's had such a brilliant career. But well, we said this when we were talking about um, mockumentaries. Yes. Yeah, that's right. We did, didn't we? Sorry, I, I forget where I am most of the time. Um, but you've got a really good cast. You've got a Martin Mull. You've got Michael McKeon, as I said. Uh, Penelope Ann Miller. Uh, Madeline Kahn. Um, the always absolutely amazing and praiseworthy Tim Curry. Stealing the movie. Oh, he, totally. He's good, as he does with everything. With absolutely everything. It's one of those films which, yet again, has got some really well-done gags, but a lot of it has got a sense of theatrical farce about it. Yes. Which it revels in. And some movies you can get away with this, some movies you can't. It's a single location in this house that's in the country, and you could easily see something like this being adapted for the stage. Yeah. The uh, surrounding cast that basically fulfilled the role of non-named characters within the board game, they're all pretty much gone. Uh, you've got a motorist, you've got a cook, you've got a police officer and so on, and they all end up dead. And each one of them has got some kind of link to the killer. And how they all arrange, they all arrive at the, the final conclusion, well, I might as well just let you find that out for yourself. But this has always been, for me, one of those really nice films that I can put on whenever I'm just feeling a little bit a little bit nostalgic, a little bit down. Yeah. And it always makes me chuckle. And it's got some wonderful moments of just perfect comic timing, like um, Tim Curry just going on a rant saying, I'm not shouting. Okay, I am. I'm shouting, I'm shouting, I'm shouting. And then a candelabra, candlestick drops on his head. The timing is Mm, it's perfect. <laughs> Some of the back and forth, the dialogue between the characters just comes off like a game of tennis. It's back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. And yet again, the timing, perfect. It is like a well-rehearsed play. It is. It is. And because of that, you get the feeling that the actors themselves are given more of a chance to shine, even though it is a film. Yes. It, it's got, it gives them more opportunity to play with their characters a bit more. And every one of them is very distinct and unique and all presents uh, a nice take on where where the, the formulaic stereotypes can go. So you've got the meek, Mr. Green, Reverend Green, otherwise. You've got the militaristic Colonel Mustard. You've got uh, Professor Plum, who's just played by Christopher Lloyd who's just a massive sleaze. Um, you've got Madeleine Kahn's um, Black Widow, and the whole thing just works so nicely. I love this movie to absolute death. I really do. Yeah, and I, I've seen it freshly uh, just last year uh, when Kate introduced me to it because uh, it was a huge favourite of hers. And I was like, I've never seen this movie. And we sat and watched it and I was like, wow, this is actually really good. I can't believe I'd never seen it before. Yeah. Um, I'm in agreement on that. I think it is um, really solidly acted, put together, and it's fun. It really is a funny movie. I think that's I think that's one of the key points. It's not just a funny film; it's a fun film. Yeah, because a lot of a lot of movies that do try and to be comedies, they're not. They can be funny, but they're not necessarily fun. This is a fun one, and I also think it kind of works because the uh, it's 
it's pretty much accessible to a lot of age ranges as well. Yes. Yeah, you've got. Um, I can't remember the actress's name, but she she was in uh, Lethal Weapon movies, and uh, she worked with Richard Donner an awful lot. But she's in this as a French maid's outfit, and and all all her cleavage is basically on display. So that might that might raise some eyebrows. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I, I'd happily watch this with my kids, and I think that's that could be the mark of uh, of, of uh, an intergenerational film. I think. No, so going full on agreement. Yeah. Well, well, season well, the Get It Fresh one winner was Ronin, agreed by both of us. Uh-huh. The season two winner was UHF. Yep, uh, which was one of your choices. So we have a choice each, and now we're going to choose what the winning movie from today was. Uh, I believe, I think, out of all of them, I think you're running away with this one with Watchmen. I think that is the one that's had the best mm-hmm. response from the two of us. Yeah, because I think that's the one that's, I think that's the one that one we both like. Yeah. Two we both respect. Three we, I think we are, we can be as critical of it as we like, but we can just appreciate what it was and the work that went into it. Well, get fresh. Three belongs to Watchmen. Yes. Which means we've crowned our third champion. You know, when we get to eight, we're going to have to play all of these winners off against each other to find out who wins and who is the Get It Fresh champion. Yeah. So we'll have a few more Get It Fresh to go through. Oh, and there are the police. That means we've got to get out of this bakery. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? You know, isn't it kind of weird that we get really, really bored of the anniversary one, but just, I love that one still. Yeah. You know, uh, I I'm a, I think everyone is a huge fan of the What's in the Box theme. I love that theme. And the Nominate 5, although we didn't yeah. have a Nominate 5 this week. But, um, you know, tell us what, you don't want to hear from us, you want to hear from the guests. So. Yeah. You know, and next week we will have a guest back. I can hope so. Otherwise, we're calling Bill. <laughs> Bill, save our ass again. No, no, we we have a lineup of guests. It's just pinning them down, uh, yeah. which is is always hard because now the Oscars are over and everyone suddenly wants to be working again. Yeah. So it's uh, it's trying to get time, but we will have our Lucy Walker episode coming up, uh, hopefully within the month. Uh, she's had some fantastic. Uh, projects going on since and we'll hear all about them it's worth waiting for so anyway uh, what's in the box what's in the box steve well what's in the box is a part of the show where andy tries to improve my movie education come on you've heard me say this loads of times he's going to be putting his hand into a box containing loads of names of movies that are all certified fresh on rotten tomatoes and he's going to pull one out now if i have seen it he's going to keep pulling out titles of films until we find one that i haven't seen and then i'm going to go away watch it before we record our next podcast and then review it it's easy yeah, that's that's pretty much accurate. It's pretty as easy as it is, and yeah. it's a it's a popular part of our show. People love to find out exactly what is going to be pulled out yeah. of the box. I mean, and they also get to know exactly how bad I am at watching films. <laughs> I host a movie podcast, and I've seen so little in the way of actual films; it's appalling. Do you know how I know you've not seen this week's choice? Go on, have a guess. Uh. Oh, it's not like a Rambo film, is it? Because I've told you before that I've only seen the one that we went to see. 
No, no, it's from 2007. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> what is it about? There's a magnetism towards 2000. I swear to God, there is hundreds of years in here, you know. But 2007, I've shuffled this thing up. It's like, oh, you're going to appreciate this year. Something bad happened to you in this year that you did not see any movies, but you may have seen it, so you never know. Okay. Uh, have you seen the 2007 Irish movie Once? No. Okay. Well, I once, Ted. as explained. It's a story of a modern, well, it's a modern day musical about a busker and an immigrant and the eventful week in Dublin as they write, rehearse and record songs that tell their love story. Okay. Oh, and it's directed by John Carney. He loves doing these music stuff because he did Begin Again and he did Sing Street. You know, he, he, he knows how to craft a, a modern day musical. It's a really sweet story. Uh, it was also the movie that Steven Spielberg said inspired him that there was something good about movies again. So and uh, it's also about Dublin, which is also the largest city in the world because it keeps doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling. Oh, thank you. Yes, I'll also thank Ali G for that joke. Yeah, <laughs> because I know you stole it. From I him. did, I did, I totally stole it from Ali G. Bastard. <laughs> Go back to stealing shit from bottom. No Americans <laughs> have ever seen that. Anyway, <laughs> is it because I use from Hammersmith? well anyway hey look um and i apologize to everyone that we didn't have uh, a regular show for one week things got a little bit crazy for us both but Mm -hmm. we are back yeah there are going to be instances sometimes where you know an episode won't come out on time it's just things that happen it's life you all know what's going on we've now got the price of everything kind of going up and we've all got to work hard yeah but we promise that we will entertain you as best we can we will bring the guests on uh, a lot of people are already looking forward to coming back on from our previous guests you know it's now a competition between bill daly and john ashton for <laughs> who can get the most guest spots on the show well we know uh, bill is coming on because um we've got a couple of great episodes and stuff that he wants to talk about yeah so actually i think we've got probably mark marshall is just just behind the two of them yeah, I, I think he is uh, he is not far behind. No. Uh, but yes, we, we do have some great content coming up, some great uh, stories that you've probably never heard before. And if you want to see some exclusive stuff, go onto the Facebook page. I posted some videos while I was in Los Angeles of Ooh. Bill Daly walking around Warner Brothers and telling stories of... Uh, he tells, for the first time, he tells the infamous Sean Young, Tim Burton, Batman return story as he witnessed it. Yeah straight from the horse's mouth. Yes, and he takes us on a little tour of where he was, what happened, and when he walked into the bathroom to find Tim Burton hiding in there. (laughs) It's genius. I'll actually send that video on to you because you haven't got Facebook, but I'll send the video on to you through WhatsApp later. It's brilliant. I can't even say that I don't have Facebook because I've got a social life because I haven't got one of those either. So. (laughs) No, you're not missing much on Facebook. People talking about Will Smith. That's all that's happening. Uh, I, I stay off the feed. So if you really want to hear from me on Facebook, just comment on something of mine and then I'll see it. All right. Well, uh, it's kind of good to be back. Um, I really wish we could have done this episode from LA because if we'd have done it last week, it was the anniversary of Star Wars Special Edition. Oh, yeah. And uh, Bill Daly was going to jump on and 
start talking about the Last Jedi to completely watch you. Oh, oh, I'm very glad that he wasn't there. Uh, you, you, you probably noticed this if you're a regular listener, but that movie is my trigger warning. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm already getting myself worked up as I'm as I'm thinking about this. So let's let's wrap this up before I say something that I shouldn't do. Okay, okay, right. Well, uh, I'll be Ryan we'll... Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. And by the way, with that in mind, let me tell you who next week's guest is. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the thing. He, he, he comes across in the interviews and everything as a really, really nice, rather pleasant, nice guy to be around. It's just that that film, oh, that film. Yeah. It'll be fun because that will actually end up in the box because it is certified fresh. I've it's already cool. seen it, so you don't need to pull it out again. Yeah, but it might be a case of you need to see it again. It might be the wild card. Mm. Anyway, uh, with that in mind, uh, we will catch you next week. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we love you all and speak to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye. I'm going home to sleep with my wife.